Hello, and welcome to another edition of Brussels Sprouts. I'm Andrea Kendall-Taylor. And I'm Carissa Nitschie. And we're so glad you can join us. In response to the escalating crisis in Ukraine, Germany announced several historic policy shifts over the weekend. In a speech on Sunday, German Chancellor Olaf Scholz indicated that Germany would deliver weapons to Ukraine, revising Germany's long-held refusal to deliver weapons to a conflict zone. Furthermore, Scholz announced that Germany would plan to spend more than 2% of GDP on defense spending year on year and would create a 100 billion euro investment fund for the armed forces. In addition to the major shifts on military and defense policy, Scholz's government stressed efforts to decrease German dependence on Russian gas and agreed to cut off Russia from the SWIFT payment system. To assess what can be described as, described as nothing less than a sea change in German foreign policy, we're really pleased to welcome Daniela Schwarzer and Claudia Major to the podcast for the next edition in our series of Rapid Reactions. Welcome to both of you. It's great to have you. By way of quick background, um, Dr. Daniela Schwarzer is Executive Director for Europe and Eurasia of the Open Society Foundations. She is an honorary professor of political science at Free Universitat Berlin and a senior fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School's Belfer Center. Prior to joining Open Society, Schwarzer was director and CEO of the German Council on Foreign Relations. And Dr. Claudia Major is head of the International Security Division at the German Institute for International and Security Affairs in Berlin. Uh, she previously held positions at the Center for Security Studies at ETH Zurich, the German Council on Foreign Relations in Berlin, the EU Institute for Security Studies, and the German Foreign Office on the NATO desk, and Sans Po in Paris. All right, what a wonderful uh, brain trust we've got today. Um, I think, you know, there has been a lot out there on Twitter and in uh, the media about what a kind of historic change we've seen uh, in German policy. Um, my CEO, Richard Fontaine, wrote a fantastic piece over this last weekend, just trying to make sense of everything we saw happening over the last weekend. And he had a line in there where he says, German foreign and security policy has shifted more in the past 72 hours than it has in decades. Um, Claude, maybe we'll start with you. True, is that fair? Um, or you know, how 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 do you see what you have heard over the past weekend? I think the word that we heard the most over the last days in German was Zeitenwende. So really, the the the, the change of 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 an era. Um, I think is is a good translation, um, and that's really the feeling we had after the declaration of the Chancellor on Sunday. It was really the impression that something fundamentally changed with this war in Europe, um, and this made the German government, and I would say also the German population, realize that some certainties ended. Certainty, for example, that we can live with peace in Russia, with Russia, in peace with Russia in Europe. Um, and that also pushes us to question something. So there's really the idea that um, a period of time since the end of the Cold War until now, a period where we lived, we tried to live peacefully with Russia, we had a cooperative order in Europe with Russia, built on certain ideas that if we interact closely, Russia will become a little bit like us. So it actually is a cooperative way of doing things in Europe that this is fundamentally over. And it's not only a little bit over, it's really a fundamental change. And such a change, a radical change requires radical answers. So the idea is somehow we, we enter a new period which will be far more difficult, far more confrontative, um, and that we have to find the instruments to deal with that. So really I had the impression 
um, what we saw on, on Sunday was, in the, at least in the secure and defense area, I called it a revolution because we really, the, the chancellor announced decisions that I would have considered unthinkable a day earlier. So it's really a fundamental change in Germany and German politics announced. We have to see how it's going to be implemented. But at least what we have seen on Sunday was a fundamental change. And we have also seen a chancellor in leadership who really took the lead, which we haven't seen so clearly the weeks before. So that was really a very strong moment. Yeah, I mean, I have been saying the same thing in terms of the response that we've seen so far, that it has far surpassed what I expected. You know, I didn't think that we would so quickly get to SWIFT, that we would so quickly get to uh, sanctions on the Russian central bank. Uh, we're seeing the private sector respond. Um, Daniela, maybe just, I mean, the same question really to you. Are you are, are you equally as surprised? Um, did you see any signs of this ahead of time? Or is this really like you woke up and, wow, you can't believe your ears when you heard, when you hear the chancellor speaking? It did feel different to wake up on Monday morning. I thought to myself, did this really happen yesterday? I mean, it was a rather calm Sunday in Berlin. And then over 100,000 people took to the street to demonstrate in solidarity uh, with Ukraine. And uh, a little before that, uh, Chancellor Scholz gave his really historical speech. And the speech was so big because, yes, it was about foreign policy, but in a way it wasn't only about Ukraine, but it was really about what we have to protect, uh, not only in Europe, but worldwide, and that is freedom and democracy. And he put Germany into a really strong role in doing this. And I thought back to two speeches uh, that marked the German foreign policy debate over the past eight years. There was first the speech by President Gauck at the time at the Munich Security Conference, um, where he spoke about German um, responsibility to actually live up to the power it has, mostly in economic terms, and engage more strongly in foreign policy. And this kicked off an important discussion. However, if we look at the change that this brought, it wasn't that much after all. There were some changes to be fair, but, but not not a historical change. And then there was Angela Merkel's speech, which earned her standing ovations in the year 2019 at the Munich Security Conference, which was a moving moment, really. It was a big speech. And this was mainly about the transatlantic relationship and the problem that the US, in a way, had disappeared as the leader of the West. And she re-earned that title, which was given to her immediately after the election of Donald Trump, that she is the leader of the West. But this speech was, I would say, normatively very strong, but little followed afterwards, once again. And now Olaf Scholz, he made this claim, what it is about uh, this war in Ukraine that Russia is, 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 is waging. And he made it very clear that it is about freedom, democracy, stability in our continent, the security order that has been destroyed by Russia, and what Germany needs to do. And so uh, Claudia has mentioned the big investment that this government has announced in the uh, area of security and defense. But before that, just before that, we saw the decisions on sanctions. And you asked me whether I saw something coming. Not that, not a speech of that kind, definitely. But a few, you know, 48 hours before, probably, we saw important positions changed. 
So Nord Stream 2 had already fallen, right? So uh, the government said very early on, was the first country, I think, in the EU and earlier than the US to, to say something very precise when it became clear that a military invasion was happening. So Nord Stream 2 got, got killed very early by uh, the German government, but then followed German alignment with European partners on SWIFT, which took a while, um, and mainly because Germany has this strong energy energy dependency on China and excluding Russia from SWIFT from a German perspective also means you can't pay for energy deliveries unless you find a way around that. And they negotiated for a long time. Um, and not only Germany, also, you know, the European Central Bank, one or two other countries were concerned about the spillback into the EU. Um, but they finally figured it out how it, how it can happen. Um, and then other sanction packages will will be very costly for the EU. So I think in total, if you take the investment that is now announced together with the costs economically that will fall onto Germany, but the EU as a whole as well, in a situation where we are in a not even yet in a real post-COVID recovery, um, I think it is very clear that um, again both Germany and the European Union are are ready to bear costs for a reaction to a ever so brutal war that Russia is waging. And I think it is a very important shift of policy, including for the social Democrats in their approach towards Russia. Maybe, maybe to come in on that, I think there is a certain, it's a certain irony that this new government, because we have to remember also it was a government just in place for kind of two months. The first big test case was on the traditionally difficult questions. Um, foreign security and defense policy, and then Nord Stream 2, all those things which we know, they were really difficult. They have been tested on that one. Um, what I found really amazing is this, what Daniela already said, that the, the statement of the chancellor was, this is about us. We are doing this for us and for our values. It's not that we want to support allies out of solidarity, as we often did in the past. We helped the French in the Sahel, not because we really felt threatened, but because we thought we have to show solidarity with our closest partner. Um, or we have to show solidarity with our Eastern allies at the Eastern flank of NATO. That was the statement was, this is about us and the peace we have has a price. So I think it was really um, a very strong moment, this standing up for what Germany actually stands for. And this has a price and we accept that price. The interesting bit, if you look at today's polls, um, um, amazing numbers, 78% um, of the people ask think that now it's, now think now it's correct to deliver arms to Ukraine. And for a long time, the German public was totally against it. 78% think it's good to increase defense spending in Germany. Increasing defense spending in Germany was a toxic topic for decades. You could never win anything by talking about increasing defense spending. So the mindset shift is in the government, but it's also in the population. And I think we cannot underestimate the effect of having war in Europe. In Berlin, we are on a two hours flight from, from Kiev. It's closer than Rome from Berlin. So I think this is really a mindset shift. Um, and you, you, Daniela mentioned the, the, the sanctions. If I look at the defense area, the decisions that have been taken to fundamentally increase the defense budget in a long-term perspective, we are now at 50 billion defense budget. If we would move beyond 2%, we would reach something like 75 billion. This is not peanuts. That's a fundamental increase. Um, so we have an increase in the defense budget. We have a special fund to, of 100 billion euros to fund strategic, important, long-term projects. 
Plus, the Chancellor's assert element announced also that important projects, for example, the dual capable aircraft, that's the aircraft with which Germany assures its nuclear role in NATO, will be procured. And it's likely to be the American F-35, which has been equally toxic in the German debate. So we can look, there are so many examples where Germany in a very little time has overcome or has kind of crossed red lines, which I personally didn't expect. So it's crossing not one red line, it's crossing a whole bunch of red lines in very little time. So again, in the defense area, increasing the defense budget for a long time, such a big move, having the special fund, procuring things like the F-35 as a dual capable aircraft have all been difficult topics in the past in the coalition negotiations for this new government. So this is really something um, that's, that's a move um, that shows the whole extent to what we feel in Europe that this is not the weather, but really a climate change. And it's a fundamental end of an era we had so far. Daniela, I know you want to jump in, but in the, you can pick up on this question too, because my my I want I wanted to get at what the shift was. Was it something from within the coalition, um, or as is it as Claude is I think maybe suggesting that a lot of this is actually driven by a significant shift in public opinion. But like from a person who doesn't follow German politics really closely, but I pay attention, you know, when when Chancellor Scholz was here in D.C. and they did the press conference with President Biden, he was really he didn't mention Nord Stream 2. And I really thought that it was going to come down to the United States having to do Nord Stream 2 itself. Right. And, And then he does it. And on SWIFT, just the day or two before, it sounded so much, I, I think it was POTUS who said, you know, that we still don't have unity on this. It was circulating that it was Germany and Italy, you know, that were kind of very um, reticent to take the decision to expel Russian banks from SWIFT. And then they do it. So it, it, it from, you know, I didn't see really any of this coming. And so is it, was there... Is it being driven by public opinion or how do you describe the, 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 this dramatic shift? Let me first look at the root causes of that hesitation that you described, both on SWIFT, but also on um, Nord Stream 2. And that is essentially Germany's very strong energy dependency on Russia. And uh, the Social Democrats, you know, in this government, but also in the previous government, never uh, really worked on this in a way that Russian energy dependency on Russia had changed. And the underlying hypothesis was it's beneficial to both sides. Uh, You know, Germany gets uh, reliable and comparatively cheap gas delivery. And Russia is in a relationship with Germany and the EU. So one has a base to talk to Russia and to build a neighborhoodly relationship. At the time, no one thought about war. And the fact that this changed, in my view, is now carried by public opinion, but it's not because public opinion changed that the policy changed, but it is really that aggressive war that Russia is waging in Ukraine, the violation of principles of international law, territorial integrity, um, the uh, destruction of the European security order, that it became absolutely impossible to hold on to the pipeline and to say we don't do SWIFT because we have trouble in paying our bills for energy, right? I mean, this just was out of proportion at that point. 
And I guess it is true that on both issues, there was considerable pressure from the United States. And you said, Andrea, that you thought at some point uh, the U.S. government would have to do it for um, for the Germans. Well, uh, when Biden came into office, there were quite quickly uh, negotiations uh, with the Germans about Nord Stream. And then this compromise was was found a summer ago uh, about not sanctioning, but at the same time, you know, some disapprovement clearly on the U.S. side that Germany was not going to stop the project. So pressure was clearly there. And in my view, the German position became simply unsustainable on those two issues, SWIFT and, and Nord Stream 2. Now, with regards to public opinion, um, yes, there was a real shift. Um, there is a huge sense of solidarity with Ukraine. There is a deep shock that a war of this kind can happen, you know, so, you know, two hours by airplane from Berlin. Um, this is shocking to many Germans uh, and memories come up with the older generation and the younger generation is, is really so deeply shocked because we all grew up and, and in particular our kids with the understanding that, you know, this is not going to happen in Europe. And obviously the episode in, in the Balkans, which was also a deadly and terrible war, that is not that present anymore. So we have a real shock moment here. And uh, as I said, a deep sense of, of solidarity. Now, the one thing I'm concerned about is, indeed, Olaf Scholz in Parliament, as Claudia described, crossed so many red lines that formally really limited the imagination of German foreign and security policy. The question to me is, how sustainable will that be when the going gets tough? When there will be trade-offs between defense spending and other areas of spending that people greatly prefer, when energy prices will go up even further and maybe we will have cold moments because uh, the procurement doesn't work and the energy transition that we do uh, as part of the green transition becomes more complicated and people will have to make more compromise. So uh, also if we develop our military and it comes to um, more involvement of German military in conflict, how will the German public digest that? So I think we have to watch with a great degree of caution. First of all, how the three parties will deal with that compromise and all of them had to adjust their positions. The SPD on Russia policy and the pacifists within the SPD on uh, other things with regard to nuclear sharing, defense spending and so on. The Greens also uh, strongly. I mean, this priority given to defense spending now um, nothing that the Green Party would have wished for in any way, but supports now. And the FDP, finally, the Liberals in government, they will have to uh, compromise on uh, the budget. Um, we will run a higher deficit with all that extra spending. And there will be a push on the European level to uh, relax the fiscal rules that govern um, domestic, well, national um, fiscal policy. So all three had to compromise. All three will have to talk to their constituencies, so will the opposition, um, to explain this. And I just think that the very positive um, public opinion support for the decisions may only be temporary, and it's a huge political task to continue leading on those issues to really explain to Germans why this is in our interest and why we make this investment also in a European context, so there is a stronger European response to the challenges we are currently facing. 
Yeah, that's such an important point. I know Chris is going to jump in, but I think we should definitely come back to this kind of question about how sustainable these approaches. Claude, you want to jump in real quick first? Very quickly, I think maybe from an American perspective, it's really important to keep that in mind that Ukraine is really just two hours flight from here. The the first refugees arrived in Berlin. So it's a kind of physically, you feel physically close to, to, to Ukraine and the war feels physically close. Um, in the polls today, 80%, I think, said they fear the war might spill over into, into Western Europe. So I think you see the pictures from Kharkiv, it looks like, like a city in Germany from a certain perspective. So I think this kind of feeling really personally concerned is not to be underestimated in this, in this kind of mutual influence between the government and, and the public. Um, and I think Daniela made a really important point in saying how long is this unity and this determination on the national level to, to last. But I think I would add to another levels that's a European. And the moment we have a really strong European unity that works more or less, but it mostly works well, actually. And we have a transatlantic unity. Um, and this mainly works because we have an acute pressure from the outside in, in the middle of big crisis, and this keeps us together. But as soon as we have a little bit less pressure or we get a certain fatigue or um, the real costs of the sanctions, of the new military, all of all that arrives at the population. I really concerned that this triple unity, transatlantic, European and national, might very quickly be fragmented. Um, and that's why I really, I, I really think we have to, to think from now on, even if we now still have that unity and support, to think about the political framing and accompanying and explaining in all areas um, why we are doing this, why is this is the right thing to do and, and why we continue on that. If you think about a new order and a new security order in Europe, more confrontative, confrontational, built on political, on a new political pillar, on a new economic pillar, dealing with the sanctions, diversification, energy, and a new military pillar, all this requires costs and we have to to have the debates in, in my area, security and defense, why do we have armed forces? What, what can they do? What can't they do? What do they do in NATO? What do they do in the European Union? All the debates we didn't really have in the past, we have to do them now under pressure. This is not going to be fun, to be very honest. So I think we really have to get ready for a long-term process under pressure with financial problems, doing things we didn't do in the past. Um, and that sounds like a big challenge, to be honest. You've both just touched on this European Union element, so I'd like to pull on that thread a little bit. I mean, we saw a huge announcement of the EU um, delivering fighter jets to Ukraine. How does that fit into this whole picture of the European security architecture? Is this a sea change in the European Union, or is this just, you know, kind of a drop in the bucket and we'll see a pivot back to kind of the European Union of old on the security and defense issues. How should we be thinking about that announcement and kind of shaping the future of EU foreign and security policy? Claude, you want to jump in first? Yeah, um... I think it's one of those, those elements that really shows there is a fundamental rethink. Because so far, um, the European Union wasn't strong on the on the classical military and defense leg. So it really shows that we rethink or that Europeans rethink positions in literally all areas. 
whether this is a long-term shift, honestly, I doubt it because in the current crisis, the crucial role of NATO as European life assurance has been reassured. I mean, Ukraine is the best ever example why countries want to join NATO. And particularly the countries at the northeastern flank, the Baltic countries, Poland, all the new members, Romania, Bulgaria, Hungary, Slovakia, Czech Republic, they value their NATO membership even more than they already did in the past. So I think that the, the traditional role of deterrence and defense, and actually moving from deterrence more to defense, because we have focused a lot on deterrence in the past, and now we have to think defense in Europe again. Those tasks are the task of NATO. We had over the last days three nuclear signalings from Russia. We see exercises um, of the missiles with the speech where Putin said, you will have consequences that you have never seen before if you come into my way. And two days ago, when the deterrence forces have been put on alert. So we come back to traditional power politics, including nuclear deterrence and nuclear signaling. And from a European perspective, the question is, what organization is my life insurance? And that has always been NATO, but is now even stronger NATO. So I think it's an important sign from the European Union to show it wants to kind of, it, it sees the, how serious the situation is. But in a long-term perspective, I see NATO actually strengthened from the current crisis. And in the same time, NATO hasn't yet digested the adaptation it started after the annexation of Crimea in 2014. We are still in NATO in the process of adapting the whole alliance, the forces, command structures, everything, following to the 2014 annexation of Crimea. This process is not yet over. And now comes the next process of adaptation because NATO has to adapt to this new situation. So we know that once this acute crisis moment is over, NATO has to ask and has to adapt its defense planning. Soft annexation of Belarus, has to be taken into account for NATO defense planning. So I think we kind of the, the role of NATO as life insurance has been reinforced a lot. And I think we start, rather start wondering what role NATO is going to play in this new confrontative security order, probably a much bigger one, and probably moving from deterrence a bit more to defense. So I think the, a lot of, of, of new questions, a lot of homework in front of us, but certainly the, the role of NATO is, is and of the US is clearly, clearly strengthened, both US and NATO. Claude, really quickly, can you also explain, um, you, so there was obviously the investment fund for the armed forces that was announced, and then also the, the spent at least 2% of GDP. Can you just help us make sense of what the relationship is between those two? And really just a few words on the significance of the fact that this investment fund is off budget. I think it's helpful for people to understand wh why that's important. In the declaration of the Chancellor on last Sunday, there were kind of three main elements when it came to defense. The first was this um, uh, special budget with 100 billion euros. Um, the second was increase the defense spending beyond 2% starting from this year, knowing that the budget starts normally, the budget debate starts in March, so literally now. Um, and the third element was to procure major projects like the dual capable aircraft. So we have two financial legs. The special fund um, is outside the debt break. That's important. Um, that's important for financial reasons. But the most important thing of the, of the 100 billion special fund is that it's mainly there for big item procurement projects. For example, the new Dewey capable aircraft, if we were to buy the F-35. 
or for example, the future combat air system that Germany, Spain and France are doing together. So far in the past, big procurement projects have often had problems with our annual planning cycle. And it often stopped and made uh, projects more complicated. With this special fund, we have the opportunity to actually assure long-term financial um, support or the long-term financing of major projects. The details of that special funds are still being defined. It's, it's really a new idea. So how long it's going to run, whether it can be refilled, we don't know it yet. But the idea is really to say big procurement projects have a safe place like an envelope and in which you put certain projects and they are safe and cannot be open and debated again and again and again and again. In next to it, we have the normal defense budget, which is what the normal defense budget does from personnel to kind of normal running of the armed forces. So, and, and this is obviously, this is the idea to increase it to beyond 2%. As I said, we have now about 50 billion um, that might reach 75 this year um, and up to 80 um, next year. That These numbers are based on the IMF projections from October 21. Obviously, everything is going to change with the current economic situation, but this would be a little bit the increase we can expect from 50 um, up to 75 billion. So we have two different financial legs, but they interact. Um, so if you buy something really great or, um, from this special fund, it might count for the defense budget. But the really difference is we have a budget to secure in a long-term perspective, the financing of major projects. So we can finally fill the holes in the German armed forces. Maybe just this one sentence is, um, this is not a big shopping tool for the armed forces. The armed forces have been hollowed out over the last years due to many financial cuts, due to mismanagement. We have a totally wrecked procurement system. So throwing money at the Bundeswehr doesn't mean that every problem is solved. This is going to be a long reinvestment process. It, not everything is going to be fine tomorrow. So yes, we have now more money. Our procurement system is still wrecked. So we would need to reform that too, but that's a big task. So it's... It's a start, but it's a long-term process. It, we, don't, we don't talk weeks here. We talk really months and years. So it's a really good start, um, but the implementation is going to be, quite a, to be quite a challenge. I think we're almost done, Daniela. I just, as a final question, want to come back to your thoughts on kind of how sustainable this is going to be. Um, you know, I think there has been, and for good reason, um, a lot of Transatlantic, I don't want to say collective backpatting because that sounds pejorative, but I think, you know, the, the, I think the allies are feeling rightfully good about the response and certainly it has far exceeded what I expected. Um, I think we all agree, though, that things are probably going to get worse here fairly soon as we see Russia kind of shift its posture in Ukraine. Things are going to get nastier, more violent, more brutal. Um, it seems to be, you know, I don't think any of us really see the way out for President Putin. So it does seem like we are in for kind of a sustained conflict. And so that does get back to your question about sustainability. Um, how, you know, how do you see the conflict unfolding in Ukraine, and, but more so from the perspective of how, how do you think about how the transatlantic alliance, Germany, the EU, and the transatlantic piece, I think Claude said these three pieces of unity, um, what is the potential that you see for us to be able to sustain this, especially if we are looking at 
I mean, some people have called this is going to be a new Cold War. I think President Biden has used the word containment. It feels like we're in this for the long haul. Um, do you think we're up to the task? If we look at the reaction over the past week, and it hasn't even been a week since Russia started it, its invasion in Ukraine, I think the ability to react swiftly and very strongly has been very remarkable, both within Europe, but then most importantly also in the transatlantic alliance. Now we see by the day more solidarity with Ukraine in terms of arms delivery, uh, the readiness to, to donate within civil society to, you know, make sure that the Ukrainians who make their way to Europe are, are properly uh, welcomed. I think there is at the moment, there's a huge momentum. What we have to make sure over time is that we do enough to sustain this. First of all, for the EU, as I said earlier on, there are costs and they are more important than for the US simply because our dependency on Russian gas, our economic ties with Russia, and also the spill-ins from this conflict. As we sit on the same continent, we're very close to Ukraine, uh, will be more important. So it's not only the question, will the position on, uh, on sanctioning Russia and on supporting Ukraine, and then the uh, progress on defense that Germany wants to make within the European Union and NATO, will that hold and will that go on? But it's also how resilient are societies for the challenges ahead. And the migration numbers, which are currently estimated by organizations that, that are really specialized on this. So um, those 4 million uh, expected refugees uh, will have to be welcomed, mostly by Europeans, I expect. And this has to be well prepared. Um, then the question of how Europe will deal with the financial burden. And Claudia explained how Germany found its way uh, to make this major investment happen all the while we have a debt break in the German constitution. We also have fiscal rules in the European Union, which um, are up for review anyway. But now, with increased defense expenditure, the European countries will have very serious discussions around the question, should investment actually be excluded from the calculation of deficits? And obviously, a number of governments will make the case defense should be excluded as an investment. And so this may put some strain on inner European negotiations because countries have very different opinions on that fiscal, on those fiscal rules. And yet it is one of the principles um, that debt and deficit are limited in the monetary union. So, you know, this whole situation with its economic consequences, which is, with its social consequences, the political consequences within the EU, um, today I don't think we fully see but it takes a lot of dedicated leadership, both nationally, but also in a European context, to make sure we all stay strong and aligned. And I think the, the, you know, the uniting theme that we have, and this is something the European Union can, can use and must use, is that it is really about us. It is about democracy and stability on our continent. It is about freedom at the end of the day and security. And unless... Um, the heads of state and government make this their topic. Um, this can go very wrong. If they do, I think they will be able to develop a real new narrative why Europe has to be strong in this situation and how it can actually make it possible to make the EU stronger as an international actor, but at the same time bring forward the two big transform transformative agendas that Europe has in the area of climate 
um, and in the area of digital and tech development. So the challenges are huge, um, but also Europe never made more sense than now, really. So I, I do hope that uh, we stay aligned and we manage to tackle all those challenges at the same time. Claudia, last word is yours. <laughs> Um, I think Daniela summed it up perfectly, but just kind of to, to go to circle back where we started, um, it really is the beginning of a new era. And I think this requires first this kind of mindset change, um, which we're currently experiencing. So this idea of we, we, we leave a world where we understood the grammar or we hope we understood the grammar of cooperation, certain principles like sovereignty we all agreed upon. Kind of, we try to to solve conflicts in a in a peaceful way. All those certainties we had don't exist anymore. And what we now organize is a new way of living together in Europe with Russia, but built on a totally different logic and totally different grammar. And I think we should not underestimate that mindset shift to recognize what we believed was right apparently didn't work. Um, so how do we organize ourselves? in a confrontative order with Russia, a confrontation that we didn't want, we didn't seek, but that we have to accept. And I think that this kind of new mindset or new grammar or new narrative, as Daniela said, that's really a major kind of, it's the first framing issue to understand this is truly new. And then I think the, the, the kind of intellectual homework we have is to put all the things we mentioned today in a kind of in this kind of new order. So how do we define this new order in politics? What will be our way of interaction with Russia? How will we organize potential new treaties with Russia? How is this going to work? How do we organize confrontation in the 21st century? The same is economics. Um, so what will be the trade-off between say green energy and defense? Um, how are we going to make our systems more resilient? So what is a new grammar in this kind of confrontative, also economic and financial situation? Um, and then again, the last is the security, defense, resilience bit. How do we protect our societies, our way of doing things with a war waging neighbor? And I think understanding the new grammar of that new confrontative order is something we just started which is not easy, but that's really the new narratives, the new grammar we need to we need to learn as as daniela said i think that's that's if we needed a reason for europe we you know we have it now um but we also know that once the pressure the external pressure has left um the the kind of long long marathon will start and will will not be be easy to do all those changes in a confrontative negative environment don't ch changing in a kind of positive environment is a challenge, but changing in a confrontative, possibly war environment makes it even more difficult. Yeah. Well, this was really wonderful. Um, it's uh, it's just really I have it's a it's a disorienting time. Um, it's a lot for people to kind of get your wrap their heads around, and we really appreciate you kind of joining us and 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 sharing your insights and perspective. You know, I have a feeling that we still have a lot more turbulence in front of us. And so, you know, I'm sure we'll be back again um, talking through these issues. And as always, we appreciate your expertise and your perspective. So thank you. You know, I wouldn't mind about better issues next time. I know. Uh, we'll try to come up it. with something more positive to talk about next time. Yeah. <laughs>
Thank you for listening to another episode of Brussels Sprouts brought to you by the Transatlantic Security Team at the Center for a New American Security. You can find all of our previous episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And please remember to rate and review Brussels Sprouts so that new listeners are able to find the show.